Hello, and welcome to The Big Picture, the podcast series on global events which comes to you from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. This is the podcast companion to our Krasno Global Events series, which is available on our YouTube channel. The Krasno Global Events series is hosted by Professor Klaus Laris, the Richard M. Krasno Distinguished Professor of History and International Affairs here at UNC. The Big Picture is narrated and produced by myself, Willow Taylor Chang Yang, a Krasno Events Assistant. The Krasno Global Events Series is a regular series of talks and discussions with high-profile experts from around the world, aiming to enhance our understanding and comprehension of global affairs, past and present. This podcast seeks to boil down these talks on some of the crucial problems of our world to its main points and contribute to our greater understanding of world affairs. After listening to The Big Picture, we encourage you to head over to youtube.com slash krasnounc to watch the full event. Today's episode, General Ben Hodges, former commanding general of the United States Army Europe on the persisting war in Ukraine. We hope you enjoy this episode of The Big Picture. Good afternoon. I would like to welcome you to our Krasno Global event today. Our distinguished guest today is Lieutenant General Ben Hodges. Today we are talking about Russia's war in Ukraine and General Hodges will help us assess the current military and strategic situation in that terrible war in Europe. I'm Klaus Laris and I'm the Richard M. Krasno Distinguished Professor of History and International Affairs here at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Thank you all for joining us today. Our audience today is quite international. We have many people from the United States, but also many people from Europe, including people from Moscow and from Ukraine. Please submit your questions in writing with the help of the chat function at the bottom of your Zoom screen. Our Krasno assistant, Leila, will select your questions and read them out aloud to all of us. Leila is joining us from Sweden tonight. Our event today will last for approximately one hour because uh, General Hodges has had 13 media interviews today already, and I bet, guess he deserves a little bit of a rest after our Krasno event. I'm, of course, very pleased to welcome Lieutenant General Ben Hodges to the Krasno event series. Ben is one of the world's best military experts on the Ukraine war, on what is going on there, and how to assess the shifting situation on the ground. General Hodges has had a long and highly successful military career in the U.S. Army. He is a former commanding general of the U.S. Army Europe. He served in this role from 2014 to 2017. And prior to this, Ben helped senior, or senior operational and staff positions in Iraq, Afghanistan, Korea, Turkey, and also with the Supreme Allied Commander in Brussels. After leaving the army in 2018, General Hodges held the Persian Chair in Strategic Studies at the Center for European Policy Analysis. He now is a senior advisor to Human Rights First, a nonprofit, nonpartisan international human rights organization. Ben is also the co-author of the book Future War and the Defense of Europe, published by Oxford University Press in 2021. Today, Ben Hodges joins us from Frankfurt in Germany. Thank you, General Hodges, for joining us today. It's great that you could make it. Klaus, thank you very much for the privilege and the opportunity. No, it's great to have you here. Tell us, what is your assessment of the current success of the Ukrainian forces of pushing back the Russian invaders. Will this last or will the Russians regroup and soon launch a counteroffensive themselves? Well, that really is the big question. Uh, it's, it's too early to start planning victory parades, uh, but it does seem to me that we are witnessing a major shift in momentum uh, in favor of Ukraine and that uh, that momentum has the feeling of being irreversible. Uh, I'm an optimist by nature, but I'll tell you why I am optimistic about Ukraine. I, and I believe that Ukrainian forces uh, can push Russian forces back to the 23 February line by the end of this year, and that they will reclaim Crimea next year, and that they will have achieved their objectives of total restoration of Ukraine 
Ukrainian sovereignty over all of their territory by next year. Now, a lot of hard fighting still to go. Russians still have lots of capabilities, troops, ammunition, and the Kremlin does not care about how many people are killed in the process. So there's still a lot that has to be done. But if the West sticks together with Ukraine in terms of sanctions, financial support, and delivering everything that we said we would, which I believe is the case, then that I am confident in Ukraine. Even today, um, I, just, I was just reading where uh, Chancellor Schultz, the Bundeskanzler of the German Federal Republic, um, reported that he had a 80 minute phone call with President Putin. And he told President Putin that uh, unless Russia withdraws all of their troops from Ukraine and respects the territorial sovereignty of Ukraine, then any negotiated settlement is inconceivable. That's from the German uh, Bundeskanzler. So this is why I feel confident that uh, the coalition is going to stick together with Ukraine. Um, but isn't it very optimistic to assume that the Ukrainians have the capabilities to push the Russians entirely out of Ukraine? Because for Putin, this would, of course, be a major blow uh, to Russia, to his own personal prestige, probably to his survival as a political leader, maybe as a person, you never know. Uh, so will he not do everything in his power, including nuclear weapons, to uh, prevent that? Well, let me, I'll come to the nuclear question um, here in the course, uh, because that is a, a concern, but I think it's very unlikely, and, and I'll explain why I think it's unlikely in a moment. Look, the Russians made four very significant strategic miscalculations before 24 February. Number one, they believed that they had force advantage, that they that their capabilities were far superior to the Ukrainians. They had no respect for Ukrainian forces. Um, and they really thought that they would be able to roll into Kyiv the way they did into Budapest and Prague back during the Cold War. So that was the first strategic miscalculation. The second strategic miscalculation they made was that uh, they believed they would be able to isolate Ukraine from any sort of third party support. No way would Europe or the US or Canada do anything to help Ukraine because frankly, we didn't really do anything after Russia invaded Georgia, after they supported the Assad regime when it jumped over President Obama's red line, and after they invaded Crimea in 2014, we really didn't do anything of significance. And so I think they felt, they obviously felt confident that that would be the case again. So Ukraine would be alone. The third major strategic miscalculation that they made was that uh, the pain would be, the gain would be worth the pain. In other words, destruction of Ukraine as a state and even the idea of Ukraine as a state would be so uh, beneficial to Putin himself and to the Kremlin that any sanctions, any problems, whatever that came along, it'd be worth it. And then the fourth strategic miscalculation they made was that they believed that they would get a twofer, that they would be able to uh, uh, not only break Ukraine, but break NATO. So these four things, when it were, that was in their thinking, when they launched their attack uh, back on 24 February. Now we know from history that war is a test of logistics and it's a test of will. And as I have over the last six months watched the Russian forces, it became clear that their logistical system was not gonna be up to the task. It was not designed to sustain long-term land combat operations outside of Russia. But that's exactly what they're having to do. Of course, they didn't anticipate this. They thought they'd be done in a few days. So they've had to create a system to sustain the millions of rounds of artillery, the fuel and maintenance and stuff are required for thousands of vehicles, uh, rations for 200,000 plus soldiers, all of these things, and this, they don't have the system to do it. At the same time, the sanctions were having effect. Most of the precision weapons, the, the top 
quality weapons that the Russians use, cruise missiles, Iskander, et cetera, uh, depend on imported components. The Iskander itself, 85% non-Russian components. So uh, sanctions have prevented them from being able to replenish those losses. So that's, uh, and I'll pause in just a moment, the test of logistics. The Russians were in a bad fix. For the Ukrainians, it's getting better each week as the West provides equipment, ammunition, and so on. The test of will, of course, uh, we have seen uh, Ukrainian soldiers clearly had superior will to the Russian soldiers. That's been obvious. Uh, the Ukrainian people, uh, incredible, their resilience, uh, their will. So the ultimate test of will is going to be between the Kremlin and Western capitals. Thank you. But do do we not have problems, uh, manpower problems, soldier problems, uh, both in the Ukrainian army and, of course, also in the Russian army? The Russian problems are kind of well known, but I hear there are also stories about uh, the Ukrainians find it difficult to uh, motivate their troops, to train their troops, to find sufficient troops, or is this not correct? That, that's, that's absolutely not correct. There are at least 700,000, 700,000 Ukrainians in uniform. You'll remember that back right after 24 February, uh, the Ukrainian government said all men between 18 and 60, I think, cannot leave. So in effect, that was a, they made the decision to do a general mobilization immediately. So uh, that means millions of military age women and men are still in Ukraine uh, prepared to fight. Um, whereas Russia has, has uh, chosen not to do any kind of a mobilization. Instead, they've used a variety of different things to try and attract people to want to join the Russian army. Very, very few people want to join the Russian army. And so the Russians are the ones with the manpower problem. Uh, Ukrainians, on the other hand, have plenty of bodies. Now, they don't have 700,000 fully trained soldiers. I want to be clear about that. Uh, because they've had to create this territorial defense force. They're having to create systems to train. You've got Ukrainians being trained in UK and in Poland and in Germany and in other places, but manpower is not going to be the problem. Mm -hmm. And should we not uh, differentiate between the front in the northeast, where the Ukrainians have been particularly successful? There are stories that they actually got through to the Russian border, and uh, the South, where it has seems to have been much more difficult for the Ukrainians to win territory. They have won some territory, but not that much. Okay, well, let's, that, that's a great question. Let's describe what's going on right now at the operational level. Um, we, we know from Clausewitz that uh, Clausewitz describes this concept called the culminating point. The culminating point, of course, is where an attacking force uh, loses impetus because of casualties, uh, they run out of resources, uh, enemy resistance is too tough, the defenders resistance, uh, and so they lose the will or the ability to continue the attack. And I was pretty sure that the, they were going to culminate, the Russians were going to culminate sometime in August, which in fact they did. Ukrainian general staff obviously could see this uh, more clearly than I could. And they anticipated the culmination point. And this, and this is why Clausewitz talks about culminating point, because what you want, you want to accelerate your enemy's arrival at his culminating point so that then you can be prepared to launch a counterstrike somewhere when that enemy, the attacker who has culminated, is now at the most vulnerable. So I think um, that the Ukrainians began planning for this at least two, maybe three months ago, to be able to do this counteroffensive. Now, keep in mind, we're talking, they, they knew that Russian forces would be exhausted, that logistics would be exhausted, but they were able to use weapons provided by the West. HIMARS is the most obvious, but there are a lot of other long-range precision weapons that are being used, and they started hitting logistical sites, ammunition storage points, uh, headquarters, uh, special forces operating in the Russian rear area, partisans, chaos back there. 
making it very difficult for the Russians to be in a position to supply their front line and also to even understand what's happening in front of them. The destruction of so many command posts was just as important. And that was because the US, UK, and others had provided certain capabilities. So that's, that's important. But what happened is the combination of very good, thorough planning and preparation by the Ukrainian general staff to decide where they're going to attack. And I mean, this is their country. So they know every creek, every tree, every village, every road. Number two, uh, amazing OPSEC, operational security. They did a terrific job. And this is very difficult to do, especially when you've got thousands of people that have um, iPhones. Um, they're able to protect information about what they're doing. We knew more about what the Russians were doing than we did what the Ukrainians were doing, at least in the public open source, which is as it should be. And then they were able to move thousands of Ukrainian troops and, and vehicles up north towards Kharkiv to get them in position. And the Russians did not detect that, which is incredible. If you think in the modern era, with all the technology that the Russians would have also, that they could not detect that. And then, this is the beautiful part, Ukrainians started talking openly about the coming counteroffensive in Kherson, the southern counteroffensive. And uh, I remember seeing, just like I'm sure you and the other listeners did, article after article about where is the offensive? When are they going to attack? I mean, it really built it up that it was coming there. And so the Russians shifted several thousand soldiers from the north down mm -hmm. towards Kherson, exactly what the Ukrainians wanted to do, which is what we would call reflexive control. When you get the other guy to do something that he thinks he needs to do, and it's exactly what you want him to do. So now you've got a large Russian force in Kherson, which by the way, is actually trapped to some degree because the Ukrainians have been destroying or damaging all the bridges that would be necessary for Russians to get back over the Dnipro to the left bank. And then when they launched their attack, of course, it was at the weakest part. And that's why you had this breakthrough in a very short amount of time that now, exactly as you say, has already reached uh, in one place, the Russian border, and they've begun to turn south. And they have not only liberated a large amount of the Kharkiv Oblast, they're now into uh, Luhansk. And they are, uh, they've also uh, liberated Izium and uh, Kupiansk, which are both important logistical hubs for the Russians. So it, it's an amazing, uh, amount of progress in just a few days. What I don't know is how much longer do the Ukrainians plan to just kind of keep the Russians fixed in Kherson or do they try to bypass them? So this one in Kherson is a supporting effort to the main attack that's coming down now headed south. Thank you. Will the uh, Ukrainians uh, be able to hold all that territory they've just re-won? Push back. That's, that's a good question. If 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 I'm the commander, if if I was the Ukrainian commander, I'm I'm thinking about three things. Number one, how do I how do I maintain momentum? I've got Russians on the move. I'm I'm in the rear, and uh, uh, how do I keep them retreating, backpedaling, keep them confused? So I don't want to take my foot off the gas, but do I have enough fuel and ammunition of my own? My soldiers are getting exhausted. Do we have the ability to maintain uh, this op tempo? Because we don't want to let the Russians have a chance to regroup, reconstitute. So I'm trying to think, how do I do that? Number two, how do I make sure I hang on to what we just liberated? So I'm, I'm worried about my flank. Is there an attack that's going to come across from Belgorod or somewhere into my flank as I'm moving down. So I'm looking for that. And then the third thing is, um, do I have, how is, how, how is the Kremlin going to react to all of this? Not just locally, but strategically. And so those are the three kind of big things that I'm, that I'm thinking about. I'm pretty sure that Ukrainians have thought through what's required to sustain the tempo. I mean, they will have stockpiled things. And they will have also 
prepared a process to hoover up captured or abandoned equipment, fuel and ammunition that we're all seeing uh, on social media so that that gets uh, quickly uh, absorbed and integrated into Ukrainian formations. I think that um, the big difference for the Ukrainians and the Russians is that the Ukrainians are literally liberating friendly territory. So, whereas the Russians, of course, were occupiers, they were moving through Ukrainian mm -hmm. territory. Um, so their rear, if you will, is not going to be under the same threat that the Russian rear is. What about what about uh, POWs, prisoners of war? There will be plenty of Russian prisoners of war made. Will that not be a problem for the Ukrainians? What to do with them? Another another great question. Uh, I have been looking the last couple of days trying to get a sense of how many there are and what are they going to do with them. Um, again, this this is something that they probably would have anticipated, and um, you don't want to detach too many of your own soldiers to have to to guard these guys. But um, they will have they would have thought that through. And candidly, if I'm right, most of these prisoners of war are probably thrilled to be out of the fight that they're going to survive, and they probably are going to get treated a lot better than Russians would have ever treated Ukrainian prisoners of war. In fact, we know that. And cleverly, the Ukrainians have, I'm sure you, you and some of the listeners have seen this, have been um, launching an information effort, including uh, leaflets, where a Russian that presents this little card that has the Ukrainian flag on it and a, and a QR code on the back, you present that, you're going to be uh, taken care of by the Ukrainians. Mm -hmm. So if I understood you correctly, the Ukrainians, you expect to make further inroads in the south as well, not just in the northeast. Yeah, what I don't know, uh, Klaus, is, is the sequencing or the time. Uh, I would expect that uh, they, obviously, they don't want to have to fight inside Kherson. That's a Ukrainian city. Thousands of people still live there. So they will not do to Kherson what the Russians did to Mariupol. Um, so they'll be looking for ways to bypass, um, isolate the Russians that are there until those Russians can no longer survive or, or want to fight anymore. I think that's probably, and, and that's not something that's got to get done in the next three or four days. Um, plus, the, for the Ukrainians, they will absolutely be very uh, challenging because the Dnipro River, as you know from looking at a map, uh, in that area, that's very difficult to, to, to cross. Um, so they would be having to cross the Dnipro from, from the right bank to the left bank to bypass or to fight uh, Russians in and around Kherson. So that'll be a challenge too. So my sense is that they're going to uh, do what they can to make sure uh, the Russians that are there don't get away, can't go deal with the other arm of this attack. Uh, but otherwise, I think that they're going to take their time to take it apart. Thank you. But let's uh, look at Putin. Putin must feel pushed into a corner. So he needs to do something like general mobilization. Would you expect that? Or even th certainly threaten with nuclear weapons, perhaps even use, uh, as they say, small tactical uh, nuclear weapon, do you, and which would be terrible, of course. W would you expect something like that? So let's, let's take those in turn. The, the general mobilization. I think, of course, they could decide to do that. And, you know, even tonight on uh, Russian TV, you know, there are their version of talk shows where they've already started uh, um, you know, attacking each other. And some people are blaming uh, the Kremlin. Some people are blaming the military. Uh, there's It's recrimination time for how did this happen? And uh, people are arguing about they should do a general mobilization or not, okay? Um, I am doubtful that the president of the Russian Federation is gonna do this because number one, he would obviously have to have prepared the population to explain why the special military operation uh, was such a catastrophe that now they gotta mobilize everybody. 
And that would probably include some sort of spin that uh, it's actually, it's not Ukraine, it's all NATO. And so it's poor Russia against all of NATO. That's why now it's a different story. So that would, that would be part of the fairy tale if he decided to do that. But I think they would be humiliated. They may declare a mobilization, but people won't show up. He, he cannot fill up his formations already. So I don't think, especially at this point, when it's going so bad and more than 50,000 Russian soldiers have been killed, that's a low estimate. Um, I don't think you'll have people rushing to the flag to want to join. And I don't think they'll show up. And even if they did, they don't have the stuff, the equipment to give to 50,000 soldiers. And then the time to train them to turn them into something other than 100% pure cannon fodder, it will be months before these troops would be have any effect. So that's, but that is something they may do. But um, I don't think that will that would change things, not not in a positive way for the Kremlin. Now the big question, of course, is escalation. Uh, and I could be 100% wrong. Our president, of course, has the, literally the weight of the world on his shoulders. He has to make a judgment uh, about um, the possibility or the likelihood of uh, the Kremlin, President Putin, deciding to use a nuclear weapon of some sort. Um, but I tell you, I think it is extremely unlikely. And here's why. To use a nuclear weapon inside Ukraine would not really give them any advantage. I mean, it wouldn't change the battlefield dynamic in such a way that then the Russian forces could exploit whatever area of what, what was destroyed. Um, so whatever price that they would pay for using a nuclear weapon, I don't. I think they figured out it, it's not going to be worth it. Secondly, and this is the main reason I don't think they'll do it, is because if they did, it would be impossible for the United States not to get involved directly. We would have to respond to them using a nuclear weapon uh, because China's watching, North Korea's watching, Iran is watching. And if they see that the U.S. doesn't respond to Russia using a nuclear weapon, then I think we'll have a much bigger problem in other places. How would the U.S. respond? Say again? How would the U.S. respond if that... So, yeah. um, I don't believe that it would be necessarily a nuclear response. Doesn't doesn't have to be. Uh, I imagine that the Joint Staff and the Pentagon has already prepared a list of options for the White House um, should they um, the situation come up where they thought they had to respond. Uh, of course, uh, one or two of these options may involve a nuclear weapon, but I think um, the price that they could extract the devastation that they could inflict on Russian forces in Ukraine, and this will be the key, in Ukraine, um, would be so uh, horrific that the, I don't think the Kremlin wants to take that chance. And I'm talking about, you know, elimination of the Black Sea Fleet uh, by uh, F-35s day and night, or uh, destruction of what's left of Russian forces inside um, inside Ukraine. I mean, this is what the F-35, I'm, I'm not an Air Force guy, but this is what the F-35 was designed to do. And it would be at very, very low risk to our, our pilots. So those are some of the kind of things that could be done, or maybe this uh, Russian uh, base, Navy base down in Tartus in Syria, you know, maybe that gets, uh, is destroyed. So there's a variety of things that the US and perhaps the UK and others could do in response. And I think people in the Kremlin know that. And the last thing they want is to have the U.S. get directly involved because then it definitely is over. Um, and I think it would be very, very difficult for um, even China and others to stand by if Russia uses a nuclear weapon. So this is why I think it's unlikely. So what you say sounds as if Russia is in all likelihood going to lose the war and that Putin will just stand by and not do anything about it. I can't see that because he would, of course, risk his political life, wouldn't he? Well, Herr Professor, uh, I didn't say that he would just stand by and do nothing. 
of course, this is not a, a simple yes, no kind of situation. Um, the, um, what happens in the Kremlin? Of course, I'm not a Kremlinologist, but um, I imagine as it becomes increasingly apparent that they are going to lose, uh, that Ukrainian forces get closer and closer to Crimea where they can start using HIMARS and put rockets every day hitting a Russian uh, Navy base in Sevastopol or airfields or other military targets inside Crimea. Uh, once that happens, then to, in my mind, it's, this is a matter of time. And so um, I think the Russians will start looking for a way out. Now, of course, um, things don't happen in a vacuum. I would imagine that there will be a lot of messaging to the Russians, exactly what Chancellor Schultz did tonight, say, get out, respect Russian territory, otherwise any negotiated settlement is inconceivable. So okay. that's the German chancellor putting that out there. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know, this big giant bridge that connects Crimea uh, over the Kerch Straits back to the Russian mainland, you know, part of me wants to drop that big thing because it's illegal and it's, you know, Putin's a uh, big status symbol for him. But the idea of leaving it up for a while so that Russians have a chance to leave give them an, a, an escape route, a golden bridge, literally, um, out of Crimea to leave um, may have some appeal. And also, I think um, appealing to the 40 or 50 or however many oligarchs there are that actually are the ones that keep Putin in power, um, telling them you got a much better chance of getting back to some sort of business relationship when you get out of Ukraine, respect sovereignty. And by the way, the million plus Ukrainian women, children, and men who have been deported by Russian forces, those all have to be accounted for and brought back as well. So yes, it's a terrible situation for President Putin, 100% his own making. And it's not, it's not the burden of the West to somehow give him a face-saving uh, escape. Mm -hmm. Would you expect the United States, the Western Alliance, to put pressure on the Ukrainians to come to some sort of settlement at a certain stage, maybe even before the recapture of Crimea, if that should be possible at all? I certainly hope not. I think that would be a terrible mistake on our part to tell Ukraine, hey, I know you've lost thousands of soldiers and hundreds of thousands of people have been killed or wounded or lost everything, but go ahead for the sake of us because that's what it would be. For the sake of us, you need to give up some of your territory. Uh, th that would be uh, absolutely, um, a we'd be forfeiting any moral authority that we've earned over the last many months supporting Ukraine. And by the way, the Ukrainians would say, uh, that's not gonna happen. Mm -hmm. Well, that's probably true. But even including uh, Crimea, that the uh, that the West wouldn't be prepared to leave Crimea in Russian hands. Well, would you be prepared to hand over Schleswig-Holstein uh, to Russia? I mean, it's just one little part of Germany. Uh, depends on the situation, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> um, thank you for your uh, insights. Let me ask you about the effects of the war on the Western alliance. At the moment, we see harmony, and I agree with you that probably that transatlantic cooperation will continue, will endure. But what about after the war, hopefully sooner rather than later? Uh, will there be a new NATO strategy developed? Will there be a new defense posture in Germany, for example, which will endure rather than come uh, go back to normal like before the war? Um, Chancellor Schultz, who uh, you, you'll remember just days after 24 February when he gave his famous Zeitenwende speech and announced that... Um, a massive amount of defense spending was going to take place. I mean, it was like uh, the dam broke. 100 billion euro, uh, 2%, purchase F-35, purchase Chinook. I mean, there was a lot of specific things and a lot of money. And actually, most of the Bundestag 
Roger. I mean, it's in the law now. And so um, it feels to me that there's a, here I, where I live in Frankfurt, there's a, a stiffening of resolve. Not, not that all of a sudden everybody's in love with Ukraine, although I'm sure you saw a recent poll last week that um, support for Ukraine in every party, except for the right wing uh, AFD, uh, was well over 60, 70%. Even the Greens were like 90% in favor of Ukraine. And here we are in September, where everybody is concerned about rising energy prices, impact on the economy, not just whether or not their grandmother is going to be in a cold apartment, but impact on industry. And yet the support seems to be very strong. Um, so I think the uh, alliance is going to stick together which was one of those miscalculations I mentioned earlier from the Russian side. Uh, but of course, people are already beginning to think about post-conflict, what needs to be done. Conferences for uh, potential donors um, for reconstruction are already meeting. Uh, Dr. von der Leyen and the European Union um, are already uh, laying plans for um, getting resources and priorities, what needs to be done to help rebuild uh, Ukraine, not only because you want to help the millions of people who are displaced have a place to live, but because millions and millions of people depend on grain that comes from Ukraine. So this is this has uh, much broader global impacts as uh, as well. Thank you. And the big factor of insecurity or uncertainty in the Western alliance is, of course, the United States, particularly beyond Biden. At least that is the feeling among Europeans. Can we really rely on the U.S. continuing their current course? How would you see that? It, that's, a, that's a fair question. Um, you know, uh, six years ago, I would have never dreamed in my life that an American president would ever say, oh, I'm not so sure if uh, Montenegro, a NATO ally, got into a conflict that we would actually go help them. I mean, those guys are crazy. I mean, that's, that's what he said. And so after almost 40 years in the army of being a NATO soldier, an American soldier in NATO, I would have never dreamed any American president would say something like that because um, this alliance, not perfect, but the best and most successful alliance in the history of the world has guaranteed uh, security and stability for uh, hundreds of millions of people for decades. And there's a reason nations are in the queue to join NATO. Nobody's knocking on the door of the Kremlin saying, hey, let me back in. They wanna be in our alliance. And it's important for the United States because our financial, our uh, economic prosperity is tied directly to European prosperity which depends on stability and security. So it's in our interest that NATO is strong and secure. So uh, it worried me, um, the former president's approach towards Europe, his approach towards NATO, uh, and I think, frankly, a lack of understanding um, about how important it is for us to be in Europe, the access Europe gives us for Africa and the Middle East as well. But what gives me hope is that the support within the Congress has been bipartisan for the alliance. Even during the Trump administration, there was very strong bipartisan support for NATO. And uh, interestingly, the number of US troops permanently stationed in Germany during the Trump administration increased. So at the end of the day, um, I think that uh, American commitment in Europe uh, is gonna remain as strong as it is right now. But there is a reality that China is the long-term threat. And so that's why it's so important that our European allies develop the capability to deter further aggression from Russia without a lot of heavy US presence, because I think there's a possibility that we could be in a kinetic conflict with China within about five years. And we won't be able to do everything in Europe by ourselves and deal with a conflict with China. Thank you. That was another point I wanted to ask you about the relationship with China and the lessons from Ukraine, which the Chinese may, may be drawing, but also the United States may be drawing. And then perhaps one final question before we open it up to Q&A. 
So uh, the Chinese, of course, are watching. You're exactly right. They're watching to see can we stick together under economic pressure from Russia, gas, uh, because for sure the Chinese will have massive uh, economic leverage as well. So they're waiting to see are we able to withstand that? Uh, can we stick together? Uh, I think that they probably are, are watching our reaction to uh, uh, ammunition consumption. I mean, we're we're talking World War II levels of ammunition way beyond what we've done the last 20 years. So can American industry, German industry, British industry, and others begin to pr produce the amounts of stuff that would be required for a major conflict? I think that they're looking to see how well do drones work, artificial intelligence, these other uh, newer developments. And of course, they would have paid attention to how effective uh, Ukrainian anti-ship missiles were, whether it was a Neptune or a Harpoon uh, that have been able to knock out Russian ships, the Chinese would have paid close attention uh, to that as well. Mm -hmm. And you said you may, you expect a war with China in five years' time? Isn't this a right? I think I, I see the possibility of a kinetic conflict with China within the next five years. And I picked five years. I, I had said 10 years a few years ago. Uh, now I think it's uh, we're down to about five. And I base that on primarily, um, I think President Xi himself, he's on the clock. I mean, he's he's done everything except say, I'm going to invade Taiwan. But there, I don't think anybody is confused about his desire to uh, get Taiwan. Uh, reunified with the mainland, but also their shipbuilding uh, progress. You know, they're building ships now in China at the same rate that we were building ships in, during World War II. Uh, three ships, sit 24-7, seven days a week. Uh, that's not normal shipbuilding, um, but they don't have a great Navy yet. They've got a lot of ships, but they don't have a great Navy. So they've, they've still got a lot of work to do before I think they would be confident that they could actually launch an attack on on Taiwan. Uh, so these factors and the language that comes from Beijing is what causes me to think that this is conceivable, an actual kinetic conflict, ships, missiles, planes, all of that. Mm -hmm. Thank you. That's a somber thought. Um, let me just briefly go back to Ukraine and the current offensive. Um, are you really do you really think that it is impossible for Russia to push back so that that current successful offensive by the Ukrainians will actually continue rather than being stopped and halted by a Russian counteroffensive? Of course, it is possible that the Russians could do that. But to do that would require them to have solved several deep problems that they've that they have that are baked into their institutional, uh, shortcomings. Um, they would have to develop a, a an agility that they have not shown. They would have to uh, figure out how to do joint operations where you have air and ground forces working together. Um, and they would have to have solved their logistics problems to enable a significant counterattack that could stop what the Ukrainians are doing right now. And so uh, that's possible. And, and again, the Russians don't care how many casualties they suffer. I mean, they will push untrained people in there. They they will they will uh, ob obliterate uh, civilian populations. They've been doing that for six months. Uh, if if they think that will help, I mean, look at their their only response so far to the Ukrainian counterattack was to to try and destroy uh, power generation in Kharkiv and other cities. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's that's who we're dealing with. Um, I, I, of course, I could be totally wrong, but I don't, uh, I don't see that. Now they may decide to turn Crimea into a big fortress and say, "You're going to have to dig us out." But um, if you have Ukraine able to position long-range precision fires where they're just hitting targets inside the Crimea, then I think um, it will be very difficult for the for the Russians. Thank you. Leila, shall we ask uh, a few questions because we have plenty of questions. Uh, sure, since we briefly touched on China towards the end of this um, webinar, uh, Stuart Rosser would like to know if you, General Hodges, expect anything to come from Putin and Jinping 
uh, meeting about Ukraine at the Shanghai Co Cooperation Organization Summit? That, that is an excellent question. Um, I think we're all trying to figure out and understand what is the depth and nature of the relationship between China and Russia. I think China clearly views Russia as the junior partner in this relationship, and they see uh, endless amounts of gas and oil uh, and passage through the, uh, once, as the polar ice cap continues to, to melt and shrink, Chinese cargo vessels coming over the top. Um, but I don't, uh, I don't think China feels any obligation to bail out the Russians. Um, partly because they also would get sanctioned by the United States and others. So um, I, I, I don't know the nature of that relationship. Um, I think China will help to the extent that they can if it causes problems for the U.S. Um, or helps China get unlimited amounts of really, really cheap energy. Thank you. Can we have the next question? Yes, of course. Uh, Ross Delson would like to know that would it be more dangerous for the West for Putin to realize he's losing this war? Would the tensions widen with the West or would he impose, say, nuclear bombs? Well, um, I think he knows what's going on. Uh, I doubt he gets accurate reporting, but remember the, the last 10 or 15 years, we've been hearing um, what a genius he is. You know, he's outsmarting everybody. He's playing chess. We're playing checkers. All these ridiculous uh, metaphors. for and, and he was always referred to as the former KGB agent um, as if he had some kind of special magical powers. Um, but, I mean, there's four or five gigantic strategic mistakes he's made um, that have resulted in Sweden and Finland joining NATO. Europe has, has moved away from uh, dependence on uh, Russian gas and oil sooner than they would have done under normal processes. Uh, the Russian defense industry is in terrible shape. Not too many people are going to want to buy Russian-made equipment after they've seen the poor performance here the last six months. So uh, he's not a genius, but I don't think he's blind to what's happening. I mean, he would not be where he is if he didn't have um, the ability to squeeze all the other oligarchs that are out there and, and understand uh, the depth of the, of the corruption. But the part that I cannot answer is, so at what point does he say, okay, time for me to retire or I'm gonna end it all. Um, but just like in the United States, I mean, he doesn't have a, a desk drawer where he just punches a button and on his own decides to end it. And so I think a key part of this and, is that uh, people around him are not interested in seeing him do something that would bring about the destruction of the Russian state. And I don't think they'll let him. Mm, thank you. Can we have another question, please? Mm -hmm. Yes, of course. This is a more tactical question from Zachary Martin. He's asking, why haven't we seen more of an effort of the Russians to dominate Ukrainian airspace? That, that is the uh, great question. They should have done that in the first couple of days. That's what the... Uh, U.S. Air Force would have done with our allies um, to achieve air, air superiority. The Russians certainly had the numbers to be able to do that. They have a lot of modern aircraft. But achieving air superiority is more than just outnumbering uh, your opponent. Um, it, it's, it's a very deliberate process that our Air Force would do that involves um, knocking out all the enemy's airfields so that they don't have a place to, from which they can operate, do maintenance, uh, rearm, et cetera. Uh, number two, knocking out your opponent's uh, air defense systems in a very deliberate way, knocking all those out. And that includes the launchers, the radar, and the uh, decision makers, the, the command and control aspects of an integrated air and missile defense system. And then of course, you wanna get rid of as many of the enemies, your opponent's aircraft as possible. They didn't do it. Why not? I think it's because they never trained it. I mean, this was one of the mistakes I made. I failed to realize that they didn't really have operational experience. You know, they flew over Syria for years never against nobody. I mean, they, they didn't have to worry about it. They immediately had air superiority. And so um, they, they don't have the culture, the training, the know-how to achieve air superiority the way we would expect a NATO or Western Air Force to do. And so the Ukrainians 
who have demonstrated an amazing amount of uh, innovation and uh, cleverness and uh, tech savvy have not only uh, prevented the Russians from achieving air superiority, you now have Russian Air Force doesn't even wanna fly over Ukraine. Mostly what they do is launch missiles from inside Belarus or inside uh, Russia. Thank you. There's a question from Admiral Blair, the former commander of the Pacific Fleet. And Admiral Blair asked, um, and I summarize, uh, it's a long question. There's a very long border between Russia and Ukraine. So wouldn't uh, it be in Putin's interest to simply continue the conflict at a, even a low level to undermine the Ukrainian state, to undermine the, the Western alliance over time? Uh, and sanctions would uh, continue to be uh, imposed, but it would gradually undermine what the Europeans in particular are up to. So could uh, Putin not simply extend the conflict and win indirectly that way? Well, I'm glad the Admiral didn't uh, ping me on uh, questions about China and the Indo-Pacific region where he would have a million times more expertise than me. Um, it, it's, a, it's a good question, but it, it presumes that the Russians would be willing to sustain the, the sanctions for another year, uh, be willing to sustain um, the costs of doing something like this. And I don't, I don't think they are. Part of the, uh, I think, conflict termination is going to include um, the United States and perhaps some other allies um, helping Ukraine have the ability to defend themselves. So a continued modernization effort, even if Russian forces surrendered tomorrow and walked away, the U.S. and others would continue with a uh, modernization effort so that Ukraine could, in fact, defend their borders. I think we're going to see Belarus uh, looking for a way to uh, uh, take the handcuffs off. They're handcuffed to a corpse right now. Um, Lukashenko, you'll notice he let Russians operate from there, but not a single Belarusian soldier fought on behalf of Russia in Ukraine. In fact, a lot of soldiers from Belarus fought with Ukraine. Um, so it, it's feasible what the Admiral says. I don't think it's likely. And I think actually, and I don't know if many people will, will agree with me on this, but I think that we are actually looking at the beginning of the end of the Russian Federation as it is today. You've got a, a small, shrinking, unhealthy population, about 120 different ethnic groups. Uh, the ethnic groups have been paying the price for the czar or for the Soviet Union or for Putin for uh, centuries. Um, most of the casualties um, have been born or absorbed by non-Moscow, non-St. Petersburg ethnic groups. Um, their industry is in tatters. Um, the, the sanctions are having impact uh, domestically as well as on the defense industry. And I think that uh, the potential for breakup is coming. The opposite of Russia under sanction being able to hold together and threaten the entire border of Ukraine. I don't think that is uh, a likely scenario, not impossible, but not likely. Instead, we should be thinking, are we prepared? Are we prepared for the possible breakup of the Russian Federation? We were not prepared for the breakup of the Soviet Union. Uh, are we prepared for the implications of partial breakup of the Russian Federation? Maybe I can uh, follow up with a question here. Larry Manok asks, asks um, do we know uh, anything about the murder of Mr. Dugin's daughter in Russia, that uh, relatively well-known journalist? Uh, was that uh, internal opposition to Putin, or do we have any information about that? Um, I have seen nothing about that other than um, what's what's been available uh, in public. I mean, this is a it's a mafia state, so um, you, you you almost have to assume anybody that's a public figure, for whatever reason, that dies or gets killed, that there's three or four plausible explanations from health to he actually did drown or uh, or she wasn't the target to all of them were murdered. I mean, uh, but I, I can't, I can't explain that particular case. And why there was very little response, we don't know either. 
that no. that causes you to think that it was um, not just a sad story. Yeah. Thank you, Leila. Do we have another question? Yes, of course. General Hodges, you mentioned how you think essentially Russia is falling apart. So with that, Ray would like to know, um, he said that this British PM Gordon Brown suggested some type of Marshall plan for a defeated Russia. Um, and he wants to know, what do you think of that strategy? Well, I think um, most of Europe, um, well, not just Europe, you think about Russia, you know, gigantic landmass, um, not a population that's proportional to that landmass, but still 140 something million people, um, endless amounts of, of resources, um, all sorts of internal frictions and challenges that um, um, have been suppressed over the centuries by uh, again, the czars or the Soviet Union, people like Stalin or now Putin, um, it, it's in our interest that somehow, uh, if there is a breakup or a balkanization, if you will, of Ru the Russian Federation, that we've thought through what happens to all those nuclear weapons, what happens to the uh, all the energy infrastructure, uh, what happens to the refugees, the, the trillions of dollars of assets that are in banks and real estate all around the world. What, what happens to all that? Plus, Russia is a part of about every international agency that there is. So there's a lot of things to think through. Um, so Europe will have an interest in helping to uh, moderate what happens. So it doesn't turn into a, a violent um, a violent breakup with with wars between all these different and you can be sure lots of people will have learned the lesson that you know Ukraine gave up their nuclear weapons um, I think others would be reluctant uh, to do that so uh, these are the kind of things that we'll have to sort through a reconstruction of some sort um, is, is possibility but you know Russia has not suffered damage from the war like Ukraine has. So in my view, the, the priority would be uh, Ukraine. Thank you. Leila, do we have another question? Uh, yes, of course. Charles Noclix wants to know that if tensions in Ukraine remain high, but there's no increase in military action in the future, what is the US-NATO response to this? Well, the, your tensions with you between Ukraine and Russia uh, I think he's asking just tensions in Ukraine in general. So I assume between Ukraine and Russia. Well, um, I think that the, uh, the stated strategic outcome of this is total restoration of Ukrainian sovereignty um, and repatriation of the 1 million plus uh, Ukrainians who were deported by the Russians. And then, of course, there'll be uh, reconstruction efforts uh, around Ukraine uh, trying to uh, rebuild and, and get people back home. Um, there will no doubt and should be uh, war crimes investigations. That process will, will be underway. Um, and then we'll just, and, and the U.S., uh, by the way, um, there's legislation that's been put forth by Senator Shaheen and Senator Romney that would require the US government to develop a strategy for the Black Sea region, comprehensive strategy that includes economic investment as well as military cooperation. And I do think we're gonna see, I don't know this for a fact, but I think we will see the creation of a two or three star headquarters like we had in Iraq and Afghanistan that's specifically responsible for the military cooperation stuff with, uh, with Ukraine modernization, training, helping them develop their institutions. So all of these things uh, will be going on. Uh, eventually, U Ukraine will get back to normal jogging in terms of regular domestic politics and the friction and stuff that happens in, in, in any country. But, um, but Russia um, will not change overnight. I mean, they, they will remain a threat to Ukraine just like they'll remain a threat to our Baltic allies and, and others in the region. Mm -hmm. Thank you. 
do you uh, and Ross Delson asked, do you still see uh, a threat or the possibility that the Western alliance might be drawn into direct confrontation with Russia? Only, only if the Russians made the terrible miscalculation that um, we would we would not be serious um, and respond to a Russian attack on Lithuania or or, or Poland or something like that. Um, I I wouldn't put anything past them because they've made other terrible miscalculations, but that was partly because I think we were not clear or they assumed that we were not serious. I, I, I don't believe that they don't think we're serious. I don't believe that they would make that mistake not anytime soon. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Uh, General Hodges said he could make give me another five minutes. So we have two or three questions and then we'll uh, say uh, uh, goodbye for tonight. Leila, would you pick a couple of questions? Yes, of course. Nikita wants to know, in relation to Russia, Azerbaijan launched an attack against Armenia, and Armenia is requesting assistance from Russia through their NATO equivalent treaty, essentially. And Nikita is asking, do you think Russia will actually divert significant resources to Armenia from Ukraine to meet Armenia's request? And how much success would that bring? Okay, I, I know what you mean, but I'm going to, I'm going to say the CSTO is absolutely nothing like NATO. NATO is an alliance of nations with shared values. There is no similar sort of bond between the, the nations of the CSTO, but I, I take your point. I know what you mean. Um, the uh, Armenians probably uh, for the past few years, uh, especially the last two years, are probably saying, how stupid were we that we picked Russia to be our partner because uh, Azerbaijan is running circles around them uh, in terms of technology and readiness, uh, the fighting that happened in Nagorno-Karabakh in the last two years. I mean, it was obvious um, that the Armenians were not prepared for what the, the Azeris were able to do. And uh, Russia has not turned out to be a very helpful ally for Armenia thus far. Um, the Russians may try to do something in here because they'll still have interest out there but um, I, I don't know that they'll be able to, to do much. And it seems to me uh, that the Azeris saw opportunity now because they know Russia is in trouble elsewhere. But this is where the United States, why if we had a serious strategy for the Black Sea region where we looked at the Caucasus as the hub between Europe and Eurasia, and we invested there for an economic development to turn that place into a no kidding hub where uh, uh, energy pipelines, telecommunications, rail, all these things, it would be such a boon to the region. And then when you had uh, companies there from European countries in the U.S., people would be paying a lot more attention to the security and stability there. Right now, it seems so far away, and the Russians are the ones calling the shots. So um, I think that's unlikely that Russia will probably try to do something. But remember, there are peacekeepers that are there now and they don't seem to be doing much. Admiral Blair wants to know whether you are pleasantly surprised by the successes of the Ukrainians, and would you have expected that two months ago, or uh, did it come as a surprise to you? Uh, I will be uh, completely honest. Uh, I'm not surprised by the Ukrainians. We've been working with them since 2015, after the invasion of Crimea, the US and Canada, uh, had training missions with, with Ukrainians. And I, you could see at the young soldier level, the young officer level, these guys are very good. Uh, they're the fastest learners, most tech savvy soldiers I've seen of any country. Um, the key was, could the old guys that grew up in the Soviet system, could you get them out? Could you push them aside or could they make the change? That, that has happened. You've got leaders now at the top that were battalion and brigade commanders back in 2014 and 15. So they, they're, they're much more Western oriented. Um, it's, it's a different sort of a set of leaders. And um, that's, that's been a pleasant surprise that the leadership at the top has gotten a lot better. But I was sure that Ukrainian soldiers themselves would do well. Uh, and I got that from my sergeants. My sergeants who were up and training them told me, said, sir, this, this is different from what we've seen in Iraq and Afghanistan. These guys are really committed. They're good. They learn fast. 
And uh, I think uh, it's been a good convergence of Western technology. Of course, we've helped with some uh, intelligence on certain things, but at the end of the day, these are very professional, skilled officers uh, defending their country and they've, and they've done well. Mm -hmm. And the perfect final question is from a student of mine, Dorian Blau. He asks, what are the best strategic lessons you have learned over your career and how do they shape your opinions regarding Ukraine? There's nothing better than having allies um, that, you know, the United States, uh, ever since the day that President Biden became president, he talked about allies, the alliance, and how important it is that we have allies. The United States, even with the biggest defense budgets in history, does not have enough capacity to do everything we need to do. So we need allies. That doesn't mean you love each other all the time or that you don't have huge debates, uh, but having allies is, is essential for us. The second thing is that the, the myth that somehow an autocracy um, is more efficient and get things done better, that's, versus a uh, democracy, which is always a little bit messy. It's not a ballet. Um, that comparison has been blown out of the water. Here you've got Ukraine, not a perfect democracy, but they've only been at it for about 30 years and nobody questions the validity of their last two elections. And they are, uh, they are, beating, they are beating a Russian uh, force that is led by a total dictator. Uh, and it's and they're going to win. So, what we grew up with, you know, the the uh, oath uh, to the Constitution that the admiral took, uh, that I took year after year after year, um, that that matters. And when you unleash the talent of young women and men in uh, in armed in your armed forces or anywhere, you unleash that talent, which really only happens in a in a democratic society. Uh, there's no limit. Uh, to all the, the good that's going to come out of that. There'll be a little chaos on the fringes, um, but there's no limit to the good. General Ben Hodges, I would like to thank you for your insights. Thank you for uh, staying with us uh, so long and for answering all our questions. Thank you very much. And I hope you will come back sometime in the near future, if possible. I enjoyed it. And I'm, I'm grateful for the, uh, the privilege. And uh, even though I'm a huge Florida State fan, uh, I'm happy to do this with the University of North Carolina. This is very kind of you. I would also like to thank our very large audience. Thank you for staying with us. Thank you for coming today. Our next Krasno Global event is on October 13, uh, also at 2 p.m. And we will again deal with Russia and Ukraine and see how things have developed in a month's time. Thank you, everyone, for joining us today. And of course, in particular, thank you, General Ben Hodges, for coming and uh, joining us at the Krasno Global Event Series. Goodbye to everyone. See you next thank time. Thank you very much. Today's episode comes to you from the Krasno Event Series at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Thank you to our speaker, General Ben Hodges, and you, our audience, for listening today.